the numbers alone make the uh, Boy Scout sex abuse crisis um, one of the worst, if not the worst, in, in our nation's history. It became very evident that it, that preventing child sexual abuse was not a priority, that there was widespread knowledge within corporate leadership at the Boy Scouts of America. And it's in writing, you should, there's actually troop handbooks that were distributed to kids during years where there was an intense volume of abuse that say, you should find a ways to meet one-on-one -on -one alone with your troop master, away from other kids in the troop. You know, we, we didn't talk about sexual abuse the way we, we did now. So these families really trusted scouts. And and you know, I don't think it's a stretch to say that, that the Boy Scout brand misrepresented uh, the level of, of, of danger. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice thought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. I am your host, Renee Williams. Joining me today are two very special National Crime Victim Bar Association attorneys, Paul Slager and Mike Fowl, who have been working on cases against Boy Scouts of America for years. I am going to start out just by letting them introduce themselves. Paul and Mike, can you please introduce yourselves and give a brief background on what you do and where you're from, starting with Paul? Yeah, hi, Renee. My name is Paul Slager, and I practice at the law firm of Silver, Gallup, and Titel in Stanford, Connecticut. And I, I have sort of a, a wide-ranging practice. I devote a lot of my time representing victims of crime, both in inside and outside the world of sexual abuse. 
And Mike, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, sure. I am Mike Fow. Uh, I am a Seattle-based attorney. My law firm is Fow, uh, Cochran, Bertitas, and Amala. Uh, I do uh, almost exclusively uh, child abuse cases uh, representing victims and their families and have done uh, that for about 20 years. Now, as I mentioned, we're here to talk about both of your efforts to hold Boy Scouts of America accountable. But I wanna start by laying some groundwork. Boy Scouts are really baked into the American consciousness, whether it's the traditional kind of a kid helping an elderly person across the street to what an honor it is to become an Eagle Scout. It's just part of the fabric of our culture. So I think these lawsuits have really been shocking to most Americans. Let's just start with some groundwork. How prevalent is abuse within the Boy Scouts? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start uh, as I think most people know, the Boy Scouts filed for bankruptcy uh, protection. Um, uh, and that case has been uh, working its way through the bankruptcy court uh, over, over the last year or so. And uh, the number of victims uh, or survivors who have come forward, uh, 82,000 is, is the rough number. I mean, that's the answer. Uh, that, is, that is how prevalent it was. And those are uh, the survivors that are still alive. Uh, the Boy Scouts have been in operation for you know, over 100 years. Um, and I think that number was shocking even for uh, lawyers like Paul and I, who have litigated against the Boy Scouts and and have reviewed the Boy Scouts files and are very familiar with the Boy Scouts culture, so I, the numbers alone make the uh, Boy Scout sex abuse crisis um, one of the worst, if not the worst, in in our nation's history. Yeah, I would just add. I, Mike's exactly right, and I, I would just add that. Um, the exact number um, and the exact magnitude of the problem is really unknown. Um, and it's pretty well known throughout those who research the field of child sexual abuse that only a small percentage of uh, people who are abused really come forward. And, and I think it's fair to assume that the number of people that have come forward in the bankruptcy understates the, uh, the magnitude of the abuse um, in, in a couple of ways. One, there's certainly a percentage of people who did not come forward and file claims in the bankruptcy who were abused in, in scouting. And two, as Mike alluded to, um, there's a number of people who are no longer alive who would have been abused much earlier. The Boy Scouts' own records show um, sexual abuse existing in the 1920s and before, and you have to assume that people from that era are no longer around to be filing a bankruptcy claim. So, I think the exact magnitude is not known, but it is fair to say that um, it's it's really stunning, the volume of abuse that's taken place in scouting. And I think it really did shock a lot of people, including those of us who have been practicing in this area for many, many years. I'd, I'd add one more thing, Renee, uh, to Paul's comments, uh, the, the numbers are shocking and, and only tell one part of the story. But for those of us who have litigated against the Boy Scouts over the last 20 years, uh, you know, the Boy Scouts defense was boy uh, scouting safe for, for most children. The, you know, 
there are always a couple bad apples. Uh, but when you look at the breadth uh, of not only the numbers, but where the abuse took place from the claims in the bankruptcy, it, it confirms what those of us who have been involved in Boy Scout litigation have known or suspected, and that's it's a systematic problem. There was uh, abuse in scouting in every state uh, in America and, and, you know, in the American territories uh, like Guam and, 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 and Puerto Rico. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Um, uh, and it, it's clearly, it's without debate at this point that it was a systematic problem uh, within scouts. I need some help understanding how this happens. Now in Girl Scouts, you usually have a den mother and there, there are all sorts of things to that. How did Boy Scout leaders become leaders how do they become a, a scout leader? Is there any background check? Is there any monitoring of these leaders? Well, I'll, I'll start to answer that question, Renee. I mean, I think it, what's interesting is I think it was a little bit different in different for different troops across the country. There was a standard process that was put in place by the National Boy Scouts of America organization where, uh, whereby applicants to the position of scoutmaster, which is essentially the equivalent of the den mother that you alluded to, where um, an application is sent to the national for review. Um, and then uh, either a green light or a red light is given back to the local council without further explanation. What's interesting about Boy Scouts, and I think what really, I think what is what really created a number of the problems in Boy Scouts is that the, the Boy Scouts have a history where a lot of the volunteer scoutmasters, which essentially manage the troop and manage the outings that troops go on and things like that, are not related to scouts. And I'd be interested to hear Mike's experience. In my experience, a number of the abusers who I've dealt with um, were people who did not have kids in the scout. They were either, uh, they, they were either uh, single people or married people without children in the scouting programs. And they were volunteers, and so they managed. They they became in, involved in scouting as in a volunteer capacity, and in many cases, the pattern we saw was these uh, these positions of scoutmaster were used essentially as a means of accessing a constantly renewed year after year new group of boys who would enter the troop, and then um, when when boys aged out of the troop, a new set of boys would come in, and it was almost like a. a a constant stream of, of fresh young faces for abusers to take advantage of. In terms of who was monitoring them, well, it really depends who you ask. Uh, the national organization historically has said, well, we had no role in monitoring them. That was left entirely to the local level, either the local councils or, or the local troop, or even in some cases, um, the church or the temple or the community center where the troops actually met. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes the local troops, as you might expect, would say, well, we sort of assumed that as long as they were cleared by the National Boy Scouts organization, these were safe people to be in contact with, with children. And we really took our cues in terms of what we did to monitor them, which really effectively was nothing, from the guidelines we received from the National, uh, which were sparse. So I don't think that is, was ever fully resolved. And that was actually the source of a fair amount of litigation, uh, at least in some of the cases I, I handled before the bankruptcy. That... Yeah, 
Paul, Paul raises a, a couple of really good and interesting points. And, you, you know, who, who were the abusive uh, scout leaders? Uh, and interesting, I, I was a Boy Scout way back when in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, at, at St. Joseph's Catholic Parish, the, our two boys, our Boy Scout leader and our assistant Boy Scout leader were Mr. Haynes and Mr. Sherman. And they were two kids one my age, one a year older. They were from the neighborhood. They were from the community. They were from the parish. And if you look at the IV files, uh, if you study them, what you tend to see is exactly what Paul said. The abusers are, are, are volunteers who did not have children in, in, in that troop. Uh, they, they may have been a part of the community. They may not have. Um, and it, it really is a question of access. And, and this gets us to, I'm sure, something we're going to talk about, which is the ineligible volunteer files. That you, you really have a, a documented history through those thousands of files about what happened and how it happened to some extent. So you know who the abusers are. You can see the trends. And um, you can also see uh, the problem. And, and Paul hit the nail on the head when he said, BSA National uh, for years has said, well, we don't monitor the troops, but they had information uh, going back a hundred years that perpetrators were infiltrating scouts for the, the, the sole purpose of access to children. And they did not communicate that to the temples, the churches, the, the, you know, the, the community organizations that, that Paul mentioned who, who were running these troops. So you've got an entity in, in BSA and the local councils who know they have problems, but are, are delegating the monitoring, but not giving those local, we call them chartering organizations, the information they need to warn parents uh, or take action to, to make sure that, that the children are safe. So back to you know, my statement a few minutes ago, it was really a catastrophic systematic failure. Uh, uh, on the part of the organization. Well, one thing we one thing we definitely noticed is that many of the scoutmasters who ultimately were abusers did have an experience in scouting. Um, a number of them even were Eagle Scouts, and some of the ones I've I've come across have been Eagle Scouts and were very highly decorated as they came up through uh, through the Boy Scouts of America programs. The it, the question was never asked of them when they applied for leadership, of course, about whether they were ever abused. But certainly, um, I know from uh, it, it surfaced in a number of cases that I handled where the abusers themselves had told the victims that they abused who I was representing in my cases, that they too had a quote unquote special relationship with their scoutmaster. So I certainly think, I don't know, it's really hard to say how common it was. But I certainly, just from my own my own practice, know that some of the abusers were in fact abused in scouting as they came as they came up through the ranks, and then perpetuated that crime. And this is a pattern, of course, we see in a lot of worlds. But it was uh, Boy Scouts of America was no exception. In terms of what percentage of people that applied to, it's really hard to say. But I do know just from the, the cases I handled that 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 was known to have happened at least several times. You look at the organization of the files they kept on the perpetrators and it is it is not sophisticated at all um, a lot of the files look like they're photocopies of you know 
Pendaflex file where you toss in some news articles and a police report, close the file and hope this perpetrator didn't show up on the other side of the country. Um, really unsophisticated. Um, and that was borne out in the discovery we did when we, we took uh, the depositions of, of those responsible for keeping the files. The, the files that were maintained within the Boy Scouts of America, we haven't really talked about that file network yet, and we probably should, um, but they were very superficial. And sometimes when you look at those files, it almost feels like willful ignorance, where, where there was some sense that we need to keep some track of this, but let's not dig too deep. Um, it's almost, it's almost, it's hard to explain, but it almost reads as if you're reading files where people felt they needed to maintain these files, but sometimes it may be better not to know everything. And, and, and so they were very cursory uh, records. However, that being said, and I think it's really an important point, even though the files were sparse in some cases, it was an absolute treasure trove of data and information um, that the Boy Scouts and the Boy Scouts exclusively had access to that could have, and, and we would argue, should have been used by the organization to manage this crisis. Um, they were the only people who had the information because they kept it secret under lock and key in their corporate headquarters. Even the local councils had no idea that this database existed. And that information, in fact, in a case that, a case that I handled very early on, we had a person analyze those files and reach certain conclusions about patterns. And, and this was someone who came in after the fact and just looked at these files and said, look, I can see patterns. And our argument was, and, and we really believe that this was just a missed opportunity to prevent tons and tons of abuse in scouting. To, if, if someone would look at these files, analyze them, look for patterns, find ways to uh, isolate and address those patterns so that abuse wasn't perpetuated in the way it was. And, and those were just things were just never done. It was just never a priority. So you've both talked about how extensive the files were and how far back this goes. So Paul, I'm gonna ask you to take us back in time. You had one of the very first Boy Scout cases. How did this finally come to light? Well, I, I think in, in, in some of my early experiences with the Boy Scouts cases, it came to light the way many cases do, where I was sitting in my office and I got a call from a client um, who, who reported um, that he had been victimized sexually while he was a, a scout during a scouting program repeatedly and, and terribly. And, um, you know, the call really came out of the blue um, because I had handled some Catholic diocese cases and he had gotten wind of that, I suppose. And so we spent a few hours on the phone together. Um, there were tearful hours and um, he reported all this to me and I really didn't know much. I, I like Mike, I, I had been a Cub Scout. I had been involved for several years in Cub Scouts and early on in Boy Scouts. So I had some personal experience but I really had no reason to believe that sexual abuse or child sexual abuse was a, a significant issue in scouts when I received that call. So I told him that I really had no idea if um, what happened to him was preventable or, um, or whether something should have been done differently, but that I would take a look at it, and um, which is such a big part of what we do. So when I started poking around, um, I found information, I found some old articles about some earlier cases, most of which had really not gone the way of the plaintiff. Um, and, and all of which, as far as I could tell, were cases where 
there had been an abuser who had who was a known abuser who was permitted to abuse again later, either in a different troop or after a number of years passed in the same troop. And my situation, as far as I could tell, was not that situation. The person who abused uh, the client who contacted me was not a known abuser. Um, so that factual setup really didn't apply. Um, I then found I found some writings. I found a book. Um, and, and, um, I found some other articles about the issue and just basically did a deep dive investigation and started to find that the breadth of, of sexual abuse in scouting was much, much broader than I had ever heard of and that I ever understood. And so started to wonder if that were true, um, why would, why were these troops so loosely organized and so loosely supervised with this person who really had a fiefdom, um, the, the, the troop he ran, he really, it was a one-man show. He never had any kids in the troop and he ran it the way he wanted to run it with no supervision, either by the local council or the national organization. It didn't feel right. And the more I looked at it, the more trouble we were. And we, we made a determination based on some expert consultants we talked to that, that really the Boy Scouts had reason to be concerned um, about a general problem, not about this specific troop leader and had really taken no steps to address those general concerns and therefore exposed this, this child to a really a terrible risk, which was then fulfilled. And that was the start of it for me. It was back in 2004 when I got that call and, um, and the, started litigating those cases eventually um, through some back channels. This is before any of the secret files were made public, but I was able to, through some back channels, I received copies of a number of those files so, so it really, it was, uh, I was provided by some outside sources covertly uh, a number of these confidential secret files of the Boy Scouts of America, which really revealed terrifying patterns of abuse. Um, and, you know, we, we were able to develop that. I was able to take depositions of corporate executives in the Boy Scouts of America's Dallas headquarters. And this was in the mid 2000s and uh, found some really shocking things that they testified to. Um, it became very evident that it, that preventing child sexual abuse was not a priority, that there was widespread knowledge within corporate leadership at the Boy Scouts of America that abuse was happening, and there, were, there was very little being done to stop it. And um, that, that was really the information that developed in the way I got involved in the first place. What ended up happening to that den leader and what ended up happening in this case? Well, first, how many people knew the abuse was occurring in this situation? Was this genuinely the first they heard, even though he had no other allegations? What happened at the end of this case? So what happened is we filed the case. Um, the case received some media attention because he was a very well-known member of the community. Um, other victims came out, also said that they had similarly been abused by this person. Um, the the leader, after, shortly after the lawsuit began and after it was publicized, um, committed suicide in a very public way, which was also covered by the media, which was a very uh, traumatizing experience for everyone, including me and certainly uh, my clients. And uh, the case was litigated to the, you know, to shortly before trial and then resolved quietly and confidentially. Um, which, which my clients and I were very reluctant to do, but they really were, um, they really were presented with a settlement that 
they could not afford to walk away from, and even notwithstanding those conditions. Um, so those cases resolved just, just before trial. Um, and then I continued to have clients um, that came from those cases, I suppose, pretty much every year um, from 2004 up until the bankruptcy. And, and um, you know, in, in each of those cases, I, would, I learned more um, shocking information um, about the conduct of the Boy Scouts and, um, and the culpability, in my view, uh, of, of the Boy Scouts for what was happening. I previously got to speak to Mitch Garabedian about his work in, in the Catholic cases. And he described very clearly when he first began to take those cases on the backlash that he received in the community. And I imagine there was some of that going on here. So what was your strategy when you went into these cases? What was your mindset and what type of response did you receive from your community and from kind of the press? Well, I, you know, it's sometimes it's difficult to know what response you're getting from the community because the community doesn't tell you directly. Um, I mean, my, in terms of, so I think that was, I, it was something I was always interested to know, but I'm not sure I ever really understood in the early days what that meant, uh, what the community response was. I can tell you that our approach with the Boy Scouts of America was very similar to our approach handling cases involving Catholic diocese or other institutional defendants where child sexual abuse is involved, which is, you know, the, uh, you know, where there is institutional responsibility for child sexual abuse, it's the defendant who has to explain themselves, not the plaintiff. And, um, and that was really very much our approach, not only through the case itself, but, you know, if there were inquiries and there were from the media, um, it was, uh, I, my approach was to be very unapologetic and, uh, and I think that's because, you know, when people are victimized in this way, they're truly victims. And it doesn't matter if the victims are, uh, if they're being victimized by, by someone from Boy Scouts of America or someone from a religious order or someone else, um, you know, there, there is no culpability, no fault, and should be no guilt on behalf of the victim. And that was our approach throughout, and uh, both with the media and also in, the, in discovery in the case itself. So Mike, from Paul's case, which broke in 2004, less than 20 years later, after this has been going on for hundreds of years, less than 20 years later, we're now at the, the most prolific sexual abuse case against a national organization that we've known. And that outdoes everything with 82,000 survivors. So how did we get here? What was the watershed moment that, that brought all of these survivors forward? Yeah, before I answer that directly, I'll step back and, and say part of, I, I think, the reason there are so many survivors that came forward, there is a watershed moment, but part of it um, has to do with how the Boy Scouts have, have handled information, um, settlements, and, and the press historically. And one question I'm asked often is, why is there so much in the paper and there are documentaries about the Catholic Church? Um, but, but not the Boy Scouts. And Paul mentioned uh, something, two things, if I can you know, deviate just a little bit. He mentioned that he had to obtain the files covertly, covertly. And that's because to this day, the Boy Scouts have never released all of 
their information on the perpetrators that infiltrated their ranks unless court ordered to do it. Um, they've never done it. Nobody's ever seen all the files. And also across the country, uh, kind of like the auto manufacturers, they insisted um, on, on confidential settlements. And um, what happened over time is the public and judges never got a clear sense, or even as lawyers, I'm sure Paul would agree, as lawyers working in different states, I'm in Seattle, Paul's in Connecticut, we didn't know what each other were, were doing or knew. And so, so you, you never had sort of the waves like you did in the Catholic Church crisis where uh, a statue would change and then there'd be, you know, 500 cases in a, in a certain area, which brings us to the watershed moment, I think, which was uh, uh, through long, hard fought battles by survivors and survivors advocates, um, the statute of limitations across the country are being reformed. Um, in, 10 years ago, there were probably only a handful of states, including Connecticut and Washington, where Paul and I practice, where you could actually bring a case on behalf of an adult survivor. I mean, maybe six or seven tops, maybe not even. Um, and what happened um, a few years ago are three very uh, large populous states, California, New York, and New Jersey, all enacted statutory reform at or around the same time. And uh, the Boy Scout, you know, against the backdrop of the Boy Scouts had been hit with a couple of very, very big verdicts. There have been some settlements. Uh, the settlements were increasing. Uh, and I think they looked at their exposure in those three states, you know, New York, California, New Jersey, and, and made the decision to file for bankruptcy. I think that you know, was it was a catastrophic decision on many levels. We can talk about that for a lot of people, uh, including their brand. Um, but to me, that I think was the inflection point. And uh, I think the exposure, the thousands of, and it's borne out in the bankruptcy, thousands of, of abuse survivors came forward from those three states. And I, I think it, I think it, you know, it was part of their, their strategy. Um, and, uh, and I think they also knew that this wave of statutory reform and, and for your listeners, the statute limitations, there's a statute limitations in virtually every state for almost every civil tort or civil wrong. And, you know, and, you know, the plaintiff has a number of years to come forward or their claims are barred. And, you know, we've seen it in Arizona, we, we've, we've seen it in Maine, uh, we've seen it in Colorado in the last couple of years. It's state by state, um, the state legislatures are, are changing and allowing adults who are abused as children to file lawsuits. And, and it just, and the Boy Scouts were facing billions of dollars in exposure and filed for bankruptcy. So, We've talked a lot about these ID files. I've also call, heard them called perversion and confidential files. As you were both looking at these files, did you notice a trend either in victimization or in the perpetrators who were, who were abusing these children? What trends did you notice going through these files? Well, Paul identified one of the trends being 
uh, single males or married males with, with no child in the troop is, is, is one trend. And the other trend has to do with access to, 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 to victims. And you see uh, a lot of the abuse occurring on campouts um, uh, during Boy Scout camp and at times when the children were separated from, from their parents. In other words, uh, Boy Scouts provides a unique opportunity for a perpetrator to isolate a, a child. And uh, it's, a, it's another trend uh, we've, we've identified. Yeah, I would agree. I, I would agree with what Mike said. I mean, the, the overwhelming amount of abuse happens. I mean, one thing that's uh, on overnight trips, and I would say one thing that's unique about the scouting program is that it's very, it's very much centered on excursions. And sometimes those are one night camping trips. Sometimes they're multi-day excursions. Sometimes they're multi-day excursions to the National Jamboree, which is a big um, get together every year that the, the National Boy Scouts of American organization has. But the idea of camping and sleeping in tents uh, and being outdoors um, on multi-day excursions away from home, which, which are very healthy ideals when, um, when done safely, are such a, a cornerstone of the scouting program. Um, and those pose a very unique opportunity to would-be abusers to, to isolate children away from other adults, away from other kids um, during the nighttime hours where no one is around to see and to hear. It seems like a very obvious danger, but it was really permitted and uh, for many, many years with, it was more than permitted, it was really endorsed by, uh, by the Boy Scout programs. So I, I think that, that, you know, that's part of the reason that that happened. The other thing I would say that really feeds into that is that the, the Boy Scouts of America program, which takes the form of guidebooks and um, troop guides and things like that, really strongly urges youth participants in scouting programs to look up to, respect, obey leaders. And it's in writing, you should, there's actually troop handbooks that were distributed to kids during years where there was an intense volume of abuse that say, you should find a ways to meet one-on-one -on -one alone with your troop master away from other kids in the troop. So that's actually in writing. In, in, and meanwhile, while that's being distributed to kids in Boy Scout troops, the Boy Scouts is concurrently collecting data and information about widespread abuse in all 50 states. So you have these two very um, incoherent uh, things happening simultaneously. And, and um, you know, so that just creates this opportunity because when a troop master, uh, when a scout master, I should say, asks one of the boys in the troop to come for a private meeting, it's right in the, it's right there in the handbook. That's, that's supposed to be part of of being a Boy Scout. Oh, yeah, and it's fascinating. Uh, I mean, it, it, the, the handbook, w w it, when you read it, it, it's filled with language like the boy should trust his leader. Boy Scouts uh, it was about branding. And, and the, the brand is, it, it's good to be alone with your leader. It's good to trust your leader. You will grow into, you know, a, a young man by doing these things and being part of these activities. And like Paul said, that's, well, it's more than an irony. It's the heart of the, one of the legal theories uh, against the Boy Scouts is 
you are you are you are presenting um, an organization and a lifestyle and a group of activities to families, not just the children, but to the parents who had choices about how their kids would spend their free time without sharing critical information with them that there was a, a danger to, to, to being in, in scouts. And, and you didn't share that with the, with the kids either. Um, you know, you go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, you know, we, we didn't talk about sexual abuse the way we, we did now. So these families really trusted scouts. And, and you know, I don't think it's a stretch to say that, that the Boy Scout brand misrepresented uh, the level of, of, of danger. Paul, Mike, I want to thank you both for joining us. We're going to leave it on this cliffhanger, but join us next week for another episode where we will explore more of what's going on in the Boy Scouts of America cases, including what is happening in that bankruptcy. Please stay tuned and join us next week. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.